Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. So today I'm speaking with Polly McMaster, the founder behind modern luxury workwear brand, The Fold, helping women dress for success. The Fold's mission is threefold, elevating workwear, empowering women and championing ambition. They're a direct-to-consumer brand serving over 80 countries online with a flagship store in Chelsea in London. Now, in 2013, Management Today voted Polly as one of the 35 under 35 most influential businesswomen. And in 2022, she was selected as one of the Lloyd's Development Capital top 50 most ambitious business leaders. She has a PhD in molecular biology from Cambridge University, pretty impressive, and an MBA from London Business School. And Polly recently raised £1.6 million of investment at a whopping £30 million valuation, bringing her total amount raised now to £11 million. So let's meet Polly and find out all about her journey with The Fold over the last 12 years, how she's raised investment and what she's learned along the way. So welcome to the show, Polly. It is so good to see you. It's been way too long. Thank you very much for having me, Julia. It's great to be able to share some of this story. Finally, we get to catch up. So I'm going to go back to the beginning because you're from a corporate background, like many successful entrepreneurs are, and your field was in consulting and finance. So what was it that you noticed in your corporate career that made you want to take this leap into the world of the crazy world of startups and why this particular venture? It really started as early as my very first day at work, actually, because I'd been really excited to go and, you know, leave the world of of science and laboratory work and go into the city. It felt very exciting and glamorous. And I thought, I love clothes. I love fashion. And I had this vision of sashaying into the office in a really fabulous suit and just looking a million dollars. And when I went shopping for my first suit to sort of really deliver on on this vision that I had, I was really shocked and disappointed. I couldn't believe that the offering was so poor for women's workwear. And it really sort of stayed with me for quite a while that every time I went shopping, every time I was looking for something, the brands that I was looking at, those that were available to me, just didn't really feel like they understood my needs as a consumer. And I think what really struck me was that that seemed very odd because as far as I could see, there was a sort of growing population of you know really career-focused, incredible women climbing the ladder or, you know, becoming more and more senior. We were wearing our workwear in those days. It was definitely five days a week in the office and it was quite formal. And I thought if we're wearing our clothes five days out of seven and you've got money to spend because you're working in this professional environment and, you know, earning a really good salary, how odd that there isn't a better choice for the clothes that that you would be then wearing uh, to stand out in a good way. So that was really the, the first spark of inspiration for the fold. 
And it was, and I think it was back in 2011 when you started actually, which was a couple of years after I started my last business, which was the Design Your Own Shoe Company Upper Street. And um, just to give the listeners a bit of context, our brand's partnered for a few seasons, your amazing clothes with our amazing shoes. I love the fold um, and I've got a number of items from your collection in my wardrobe. You bore witness to my own fundraising endeavours over the years. And I know that you're, you'll very much remember when I crowdfunded for Upper Street, which is quite an experience. So we're going we're gonna to chat about your own crowdfund, your recent crowdfund in a minute. But um, let's first of all talk about the, the early days of fundraising. I know in the early days you, you bootstrapped a little bit, but it wasn't long before you did go out and get your first angel funding round, wasn't it, Polly? So tell us about that. How did you, how did you approach that first fundraise? So absolutely, as you say, um, way back in those early days, I'd finished the MBA and I was working with a business partner called Cheryl. And she and I had really used the whole of the MBA as a giant sort of experiment project on the concept that would eventually become The Fold. And in a way that put us in really good stead because we were able to use all of the different things about marketing and there were lots of entrepreneurship classes and we wrote we effectively wrote a business plan while we were at business school for the fold i mean it was very out of touch with what i've since learned as the reality and it was you know probably very naive but it was still a good sort of basis for really thinking through what the business could become and we did a huge amount of research when we graduated from business school she moved to new york and at that point, we'd put a bit of our own money in and we'd done a few sort of trials, like minimal viable product type trials. Could we at least sell anything to anyone? We had some sort of studio made sort of little bit of a clothing line to just start experimenting and seeing how it could go. And when she was in New York, we started the conversation with some different um, investors. And that was the beginning of the more sort of, uh, of the fundraising journey and also how the fold then evolved. So. What was quite interesting was that there were a couple of themes that came out of that straight straight away, which was, okay, so one of you is based in London and one of you is based in New York. How is that going to work? You guys are right at the beginning of this journey. You know, you're sort of effectively pre-revenue. You you know, without being rude, you don't really know what you're doing. I would highly suggest that if you're going to do something, try, you know, let's keep it simple. You need to start from one city first. And of course, we were saying, no, 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 we can do it. We can do it. We were sort of blindly optimistic about it. And then as the you know as this pattern started to repeat itself, we you know finally listened and and took it to heart. Cheryl ended up going off and working for another startup, um, and I carried on with the fold. So we we both got to go on a startup journey, but it ended up being different startups, and and we're still in touch today. So it was you know it, you know our friendship has has remained really strong. So from my perspective, though, I was then based in London, doing it on my own, and definitely needed to raise investment in order to take the business forward. I think for anyone listening who may be working on a sort of retail type project or something where there's physical inventory involved, one of the things that we learned quite quickly is that it's a cash hungry business. So although we could sort of bootstrap it for a while and we sort of had a, some tasters of some manufacturing models to try and invest less upfront in stock, the bottom line is that the consumers expect to have a bit of a choice of product. They want it quite quickly. And we needed to be invest, able to invest in the stock to, to be able to deliver that. Also to be able to grow. So, you, you know, to fund your working capital cycle effectively. And when you're starting out, it's not like you can do that from a bank loan. You need to really be able to do that from equity because you've got no track record and you've got no profits um, to back up your story. 
So angel investment at that stage seemed like the best route. And at that point, it was then me going out um, to try and find angel investors to back the story. This is another interesting little factor because I think I'd also thought, well, the obvious type of investor, angel investor for this would be some great female investors because the product that we're doing, the story that we're telling is about these incredible women who are very career focused, really high flying, and surely some female investors will really resonate with that because it might very much be part of their own story, you know, during their professional career. And it was quite shocking to me again that there really weren't that many uh, female angel investors and finding them in in the networks and sort of accessing that group of women actually felt felt very challenging. It tended to be angel networks which were very male dominated. If I was talking to male angel investors, um, I got quite a few different themes of conversation, but one was often, well, mm, that's interesting. So, you know, imagine this is a, a man of a certain age who's, because he's an angel investor, is naturally quite wealthy. And so his experience of life is, well, you know, my wife doesn't work um, and she doesn't really, you know, so she doesn't really need product like The Fold because she's not a professional woman and, you know, so I don't really understand what it is you're trying to do or, you know, why this is such a, a problem out there. Um, and and so, frankly, you know, so then it was just a, a no because there was no real understanding of the, the commercial opportunity, the consumer who was looking for this type of product. And and obviously that was quite demoral, quite yeah, demoralising I mean, story I, to I, hear. I always find that, that fascinating, really, that an investor – if they don't understand it from their own personal experience, it's just so easy to say no. It does make it very challenging, doesn't it, when you're when you're building a, a product or a service which isn't for your investor. <laughs> I think that's right. And actually, something that I feel like I've learned along the way is the best place to start looking for those type of angel investors is to find that common ground. Mm-hmm. And the things, you know, you know, I wish I knew then is trying to build that network before you're doing the angel investing, which of course is difficult because if you need the angel investing to get going, there's a bit of a you know catch-22 there. But in an ideal world, to build up some relationships with either people in the industry or you know professional women or people who could have that common ground, let's say, with the product or service that you're trying to offer is actually really helpful because then when it comes to a conversation about investment – they're already up the curve a bit about the type of person you are, how dedicated you are to the to the problem. You've already been through it a few times from a more sort of general sense. And then I think it's much easier to get them on board. Mm. But I do think that common ground is quite important, whether it be the sector that they like or the sector they've got experience with, or maybe they're the, the consumer. Because otherwise you're you're trying to convince them of something that they that they don't have either a professional or a personal understanding of. And it just makes the conversation a bit harder. And, you know, you're inevitably going to get lots of no's anyway. So trying to find any which way that you can to make that conversation a bit easier is is always going to help. Yeah, I totally agree. Never too early to start networking and push on doors that are going to open more easily, not those ones that are stapled or nailed shut. (laughs) So um, some challenges there. So where did you find your, your first investor? So eventually, after about 5,000 cups of coffee with different people, um, I did finally meet these two women who were 
absolutely that you know the women I was I was describing that I was looking for so they were able to resonate with what the product opportunity and the commercial opportunity was they'd done a bit of angel investing already so this wasn't their first rodeo they'd got to know me during the course of you know the conversations about investment and you know finally they were just the two who were willing to sort of take the plunge and what was quite nice is they sort of ended up coming in you know separately but together so it was sort of like a very mini little round um, but the two of them all doing the diligence and the conversation together it probably made it a little bit harder for me on the negotiation front uh, but at the end of the day it's, it's interesting because so many times you know you might be talking to lawyers or or different people and they they might be saying well you know that's not necessarily the best deal you know you might be giving too much away or this or that but what I've certainly lived through is you don't always have a ton of choice and there's a point at which you have to go look if I really want to do this and this is the opportunity I have is it is it good enough for me to you know to do it and to keep going and and you know that was definitely the decision that I that I took yeah and I think good good point about good I mean good point about good enough I mean I, I would say you know we always encourage our founders to strive to find the perfect fit but like trying to find a husband <laughs> there is no such thing as the perfect fit. You're so good enough. I think. You know, what what is that bar? But being clear yourself about what what that bar is, because what you don't want is somebody who is really not a good fit, and you're doing it because you feel desperate. There's there's a there's a fine line, I think. There. I think another learning I'd probably have is I think I always remember feeling in a bit of a rush, and it was sort of a rush because I had a sort of intern who. I'd said, look, I, you know, I can't employ you fully until I've raised some money because I'd be sort of leading you on. You know, I, I needed to get the investment in before I could take on employees and and do things properly. And, you know, I was hungry because I was ambitious. And I think that drove a lot of the, the sort of the rush factor. But I probably, if I, again, if I could go back, I'd almost maybe just not feel that everything had to be such a rush you know why not just slow things down a bit what was really driving that for me I'm not sure that I could really say and and actually that you know that might have made things feel a little bit less stressful at that time or given you a bit of space to sort of look at the terms and and look at Mm. the opportunity on the other hand I guess what I was also thinking was that in a way raising that angel round was a bit of a gating moment for me in the sense of I knew that if I couldn't raise that money, I I would have to go and find, you know, find a job or go back to my previous job. And it was it was very much a if I can raise this money, this is the sort of proof to myself and to the business that there's a real proposition here. It's been validated. I've raised the money and then I can get on with it. So I suppose that probably drove a bit of the sense of urgency and getting on with it, uh, because for me it was it was the deciding moment of of stopping or or carrying on Mm, makes sense so you got that investment round secured and that enabled you to then you know really start growing the business tell us a little bit about the trajectory of the business after you'd raised investment what happened over the next the next few years before you kind of needed to go out and do a more serious round I think the age old thing that people say of you're going to need much more money than you think was obviously true. So it wasn't long before I needed to go back to the same investors and say, actually, I, you know, I'm going to need a bit more. But the business was growing. So what we were finding was that we were starting to test different marketing channels. We were starting to test different routes to market. And 
things were at least starting to work. So when we were then having those conversations with the investors again, at least that we were showing there was some progress and some traction. And I would say that we sort of limped along from sort of small angel round to angel round for probably a good two to three years while we top top things up, you know, would grow a bit more, top up again, grow a bit more, and every once in a while add a new shareholder into that round. So it was the first two investors who followed on and then added in a couple more angels. And of course, the more that you go through the journey, in a way, the easier it became to bring in a couple of more angels along the way, because by then you've got a little bit more track record, you've got a little bit more sales, you know, you've got, you've, you've navigated a few twists and turns. So there's a little bit more proof that you're somebody who's backable and you're really committed to the journey. And I think that was really helpful. I think I would say 2015 was a real turning point for the brand for a number of reasons. Um, at the beginning of the year, we actually did another angel round. And I have to say, uh, so for anyone going through the sort of fundraising journey, it was probably one of the most painful moments that I've had in the business ever. And, and you know, probably the second most painful was probably then COVID. So it was it was very, very difficult because I'd grown the business to a certain amount, but of course that made it even more cash hungry. So things were growing. It was actually, it was sort of ticking along. It was doing all right. And, you know, I was just desperate for cash, absolutely needed it. And of course, even though I'd left myself, you know, easily sort of six months plus to raise the money, it just took forever. And I was sort of still chatting to different angels and trying to get people over the line. And it was sort of, I suppose the feeling was like, it was like herding cats. And it was like herding cats, but with this wall coming towards you of, you know, how can you pay that bill? How can you pay that bill? And just the, the absolutely paralyzing fear of it every single day was was really, really horrible, actually. Um, and, and I would say it really affected me physically. Like I, I, was, I was sort of having the closest thing I could say to sort of panic attacks. I was really struggling to eat. I was really struggling to sleep. I found it very difficult to talk to people about because I felt quite sort of ashamed that I was in such turmoil about it all. And and it was, you know, you sort of, I guess at the end of the day, you just don't know if it's going to be all right. You don't know if you're going to get that investment over the line. And also yeah. you're still the face of the brand. So you're showing up every day to your team and putting a big old smile on. And you're going out to more investors with a big old smile on saying, you know, please come about the business. But meanwhile, you're, you know, you're terrified that you're going to get it over the line. And a couple of months later, I did manage to get it over the line. And I do remember, and this is something I would say is a really, um, a really big learning for me, is that there was just suddenly this moment where I had maybe maybe four or five investors who were you know, ready to commit. But I realized I sort of had this moment of I'd, I'd set a bit of a target for what I wanted to raise, and I wasn't quite there, but I got most of the way there. And I just thought, do you know what? I actually just need to call it. I need to just say, great, okay, you're here. Let's stop worrying about the number that I said and let's just get these people over the line. And if I can then top up and do, you know, a second close because I find someone else, fine, I'll do it. And that was a real breakthrough moment for me. And I think what had been stopping me doing that was this sort of, but I can't do that until I hit exactly this number or that number. And just letting that go a bit and going, no, this is enough. This is absolutely enough for me to get going and, you know, keep going. Yeah, and very Sorry, I was going to. I mean, yeah. you know, very, very wise actually to do that. It's good to set that kind of minimum, optimal, you know, and then a stretch. 
I mean, I, me- I remember that time, Polly, because I think we were both raising at about the same time. <laughs> I seem to remember quite a few Absolutely. glasses of wine, um, <laughs> sobbing in corners of pubs, talking about it. It exactly. is really stressful. Um, if you know, a couple of questions on that before we continue this story. Actually, is one is kind of if you could go back and think about how you might have managed your stress more, how you might have managed your stress diff- more differently. I'd love to know. And do you think there is anything you could have done to try and herd those cats a bit sooner? So I'll take the second bit first. That's almost yeah. maybe easier. <laughs> so I think my learning was have sort of the piece of paper ready and keep it really simple. So if somebody's sort of bitten and shown a little bit of interest, have just the high level term sheet that says, great, here's a little blank line for you to write how much you're going to put in. Here's the term, high level terms of the deal, you know, the valuation and, you know, information rights and various other bits and bobs. And then just give it to them and then ask them for it back. And you're sort of done. And I, I think although that sounds like really ludicrously simple, that step of doing that, then it felt quite hard to actually be like, oh, OK, you've said you're interested. Well, here's the piece of paper. Let's go and do it then. And that was just exactly what I needed to do. And actually, it shows them clarity what they need to do it makes it simple for them you know all good all good things that they want to see from somebody running a business so why it felt so hard to me I don't know and Mm. I think it's because you know at the end of the day it's about money and it feels awkward and you're sort of literally asking them for their money and yeah you know that we we just have to get we have to get comfortable with with just closing asking for the money and closing it and doing it as you go totally totally makes sense and actually now I mean if you're doing it now you know, rolling closes are, are much more common now. It, there's the, you know, the, the legal paperwork is there to make that easy. Um, That's really yeah. interesting because, yeah, that would have really helped me, I think, um, mm. sort of manage the situation a bit better. And, of course, some angels, they want to wait and know that there is a bit of a round coming in together so that they know that you've got adequate amount and I can understand that. But I think, yeah, just being a bit more comfortable and a bit more direct, you know, great, here's the piece of paper and then great you know here are the bank details let's go kind of thing um I think the other learning I would have about that is at the time and it was also driven by I suppose the funding resource I had in the business but I didn't have someone helping me on the finance side I only really had a bookkeeper and although I had some you know sort of operate experience from working in the industry that doesn't make me a good finance sort of professional in the business and so that probably would have helped because, for example, now I've got this, you know, most amazing CFO and obviously I couldn't have afforded her at the time or, you know, that kind of structure. But what it does help to do is sort of divide the conversation a little bit. Oh, you know, great. We've, you know, here's the story about the business and come in and then, you know, they can sort of follow up with, well, great, here, here are some of the details. And it makes it feel a slightly more professional arrangement um, and sort of helps maybe to balance out that conversation a bit. But also would have, I think, lowered my stress level about, managing the cash flow because I think at the time for example asking someone if I could pay them a bit later or do this or that felt really terrifying and actually what I've learned is that's actually not an uncommon thing for people working in finance to do to manage cash flow you know to have conversations with suppliers to help you know help your working capital cycle a bit and again that would have just been reassuring they could have been helping to you know give me more information and just be a bit clearer about what levers we could pull or what opportunities we did have. So I think, again, you know, that would have helped my stress level. In terms of managing the stress, honestly, I don't know. I mean, 
I would love to say that, you know, I could have done a bit more self-care or whatever. But at the time, I mean, that that just felt that just felt too much. It felt like I don't I just have to I just have to get through this. I have to make it work. I have to put one foot in front of another and and try and get over the line. And I sort of swore to myself I'd never let myself get in that situation again. But, you know, lo and behold, COVID comes around and, you know, we're a workwear brand and obviously people weren't going to work during COVID and our sales, you know, fell off a cliff. And by then the business was much bigger. So the cost base of the business was much bigger. You know, our cash burn obviously went, you know, massively up, you know, immediately because our revenues had come down. And we just had to hunker down and it was, you know, it was a really difficult time because we we definitely needed cash to, even though we sort of really, really went to ground, we needed cash to get through that period of about a year. And and although I'd sort of said, oh, I'll never get myself physically so sort of stressed about that situation again of raising money, it was absolutely as stressful again. <laughs> yeah, but it time. was un- it was unprecedented, wasn't it? It I was mean, quite unprecedented. But this, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, we will... There's always stress. Stress is always potentially there. And I think we do we do get better at handling stress because it just becomes something that we get get used to. You know, it's a sort of daily occurrence, isn't it? With all the as an entrepreneur, you're dealing with uncertainty, big decisions, everybody's asking you questions all the time. You never have enough information. You know, you're kind of it does feel it doesn't matter how far on you are as an entrepreneur, actually, and you're now much further on the journey. You often feel like you're going around with a big blindfold on, not really oh, yeah. knowing what you're doing. So Absolutely. you know, uh, we we do sort of slightly get used to it. But you're, you know, sometimes we have those periods in the business where you just got to get through it, and it and it is easier on the other side. Often you then step into some new challenges, but they're different, and it does get easier. Hello, it's Julia here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast episode. I just want to take a really short break in this interview to tell you about my best-selling book, which I know you're going to find super helpful as you think about and prepare for your own fundraising journey. It's called Raise, the Female Founder's Guide to Securing Investment, and it's available in paperback, hardback, on your Kindle, and now also as an audiobook. In this book, you're going to discover the answers to all the questions you might have around raising investment and specifically how to overcome the challenges you might face as a female founder. The guide follows the five-step process that I've been using with all my amazing clients that entered the arena since 2015, who've raised over £20 million in funding. And you'll find over 35 inspirational case studies of female founders who've successfully raised investment in the book. And you'll also get to hear my own story of raising over £2 million of investment for my last business, which wasn't without its challenges. So you can get the book on Amazon, on your Kindle or on Audible. Just type in Raise, the Female Founder's Guide to Securing Investment, and you'll find it. You know, you did, I mean, so you stepped, you got through that challenge, you you herded those, those cats, you got those angel rounds in. But, I mean, there were some great things that happened along the way, weren't there? I mean, let, let's talk about what happened, the Kate Middleton effect. I mean, tell us about um, what happened when she wore one of your dress. I think it was a dress, wasn't it, she wore? Absolutely. So, you know, that difficult period was the first half of 2015. And then the second half of 2015, things got a lot better and a lot more exciting. <laughs> so, like I said, the business was doing all right. And then we had a wonderful moment where, um, like you say, the, the now Princess of Wales 
uh, was going to one of her events and she was wearing one of our dresses. And, and that was really quite a game changing moment because it puts you on the on the world stage. A lot of people notice you as a brand. Consumers are you know, really excited to even for that exact product, but also to look at the brand. And it's it's, you know, they're really important sort of turning points, I suppose. It doesn't solve everything or change the entire course of, of your business, but it it's all of these little incremental steps that, you know, help you keep stepping up and, and keep developing. And actually, it was also, it ended up being really helpful timing because we were in the midst of discussions with a new investment partner called Active Partners, who are a consumer-focused growth capital fund. And we were in quite serious discussions with them off the back of sort of doing the angel round. I'd already met them, but I was, I'd said to them, look, let me get the angel round closed because we, we really just need to do that. And then let's pick up the conversation again um, after that. So we'd started discussions and actually, you know, that year was also very eventful on a personal level because then after closing the angel round, I'd started these discussions with um, with this investment partner I also became pregnant, which was interesting for then having the discussions with the investment partner and, you know, was hoping was hoping to close the round by the end of the year. And so when we finally signed that deal, I was 36 weeks pregnant. I have to say, I think a lot of investors and I have heard quite a lot of stories where people have walked away. Uh, I think that's a real shame. I also think it's a really it's a really challenging juncture. I can understand it's challenging on both sides. I think it would be naive of me to think that that would then be very easy for them because there was, you know, an unknown that I was entering into and and how was I going to handle that? So I did present them with a maternity plan, which was, you know, this is how I'm proposing to handle it. I will be getting a lot of help. Um, I'm going to be trying to take minimal time out of the business. And of course, as a, you know, the prospect of becoming a new mother and, explaining all of that in a very transactional way, way you know feels quite odd and was quite was quite difficult but on the other hand it was I really need that investment for the business to survive and turn the next corner so I'm not prepared to walk away from these discussions so I, I just tried to handle it in the most professional way that I could and and good for them they they really stuck with it and you know they believed in me and so my daughter was born in the January of 2016. And, you know, I would say I didn't have a lot of time off, sort of any, but, and it, and it was very hard, but I did navigate it. And we, you know, we ended up with this great new investment partner. And, and that was a really, really good thing for the business. And like you say, lots of, you know, we then entered a period of lots of exciting growth. They, they continued to support the business over a number of years and they're still our, our main investors. So, we we've sort of gone on quite you know quite a bit of a journey together and then navigated some interesting times after that but it was also just such an exciting turning point for the business because it was a more significant investment it also gave some validation to hiring and talent into the team who were excited that we were backed by this sort of growth partner and all of those things you know things just started to get a bit easier we started to find some routes to market we started trading in the US which led to a lot of growth. So lots of really exciting developments sort of during that period between sort of 2016 and, well, and COVID really uh, was, a, was a very, very exciting time. And, I, and I've now got two children. So one, born, uh, one child born in 2016 and one in 2018, um, you know, during that time, that sort of investment that, horizon. That was a fun well. time. Gosh. Um, so you were certainly busy, Polly. 
and and you know so you've had those angels you've had vcs and um you know we hear a lot of negative kind of stuff about vcs sometimes they get a bit of a bad rep i think it can be quite challenging for a consumer brand to secure venture capital funding um in the fashion space also quite quite challenging so what's your experience been like so far of dealing with vcs how would you how do you how would you describe them in terms of the difference between working with a, a vc and working with angel investors so i think it's really the moment where it becomes a much more professional sort of level of governance and expectation in the business and i think that's something you have to have your eyes wide open to when you go into it so at the end of the day, if you take away the sort of commercial aspects of, of the business and the, the broader picture, at the end of the day, investors are there to invest in something, you know, help help to grow it and then make a return. So I suppose, again, it would be naive to enter that partnership without really just having that knowledge that at the end of the day, that is what their job is there to do. So they are there to support you and to help grow the business and, you know, to especially in a small business, I think it's a really good sort of holistic relationship if you can have one, but also in the knowledge that they do have that remit at the end of the day and you are answerable them to them if you're going to choose to take that kind of investment into the business and sort of be aware that that does put the pressure on the growth trajectory, you know, setting, you know, budgets are really important, mm -hmm. cash flow profiles really important and they will have, you know, far more demands of you than uh, than a group of angel investors will mm. so i think it's i think it's really that two-way relationship and we've had an excellent relationship with with our investor i think part of the reason for that is that i've as i said before i've got this wonderful cfo emmeline maxwell and i suppose the approach that we've taken is is always one of you know real transparency probably slight you know over communication in, in board packs sometimes some quite lengthy board packs and things mm. like that and really just being very honest with with where we are and what we're doing and bringing them along on the journey. And I'm sure there's lots of things that, you know, over time we could have done better or we could, you know, you never know how, how well you're really doing in terms of how you're running the, the business because you're, you're doing what you can. But I think that trying to foster that relationship has only been good for how we've then been able to manage the business as, as a board and mm -hmm. um, and keep that good relationship going is, you know, really just trying to be very open and honest and, and communicate along the way. And that's yeah. put us in good stead. But that structure, that level of professionalism, as you say, the governance, so, so important. And I think, you know, I, I remember when, you know, with, with my last business, when we took on a VC, I couldn't wait for that. Actually, I welcomed it because I knew it would help catapult our growth. And I think it's something that it's worth founders thinking about much sooner rather than later. Actually, the sooner you can start putting in some of that structure about how you govern your your, your organization, how do you, you know, having a board of advisors, those kind of things, the better because it sets you up ready for that path. Something I see happening quite a lot with crowdfunding when people have gone straight to crowdfunding is that they come out the back of that and don't there is no there is no structure put in place to then to manage the business going forward so it's still very founder led often no board of advisors no governance and i think that that can be quite a dangerous spot actually when you're when you've got suddenly quite a lot of capital that you've got to deploy effectively 
Yes, that's a good point, actually. I think you're right, because I suppose the journey that we went on is having our angels on the board and then the growth capital investor on the board and a chairman. We've got a fantastic chairman called Richard Sims, who's a brilliant sort of navigator of of the industry and really is so good at being such a great listening listening board for, for, for all of us. And having that sort of set up, for example, as a backdrop to doing the crowd, because we've done the crowd later, I suppose I didn't really consider, like you say, that, you know, some people are doing the crowd without that structure in place. And I think it's it's really essential because you're already operating like a, you know, really professional sort of business. And um, I think that's very reassuring for investors. So mm-hmm. they know that you, you've you got you know, all the all the right bits in place to make sure you're doing the right things with your with your growth and legally and for your team yeah. and all your stakeholders. Absolutely. And and I imagine, so when the proverbial hit the fan <laughs> with COVID, so, you, you know, you're not just navigating on that on your own, you're navigating that with a, with a, with some serious investors on board. Um, what happened? How, the, how did you deal with, with such an unexpected turn of events for, for a business that's in work, you know, kind of workwear and we were all at home wearing our pajamas um, possibly tracksuit bottoms if you were lucky enough to get out of your pajamas. What happened? Yeah, it was it was tremendously difficult. We, I mean, we spent a lot of time with the board during the very first phases because things were moving so fast and the developments were happen, happening just pretty much daily. So it was looking at as many different scenarios as we could. I mean, I think so many people working in businesses like any business really during that time it was almost like a daily reforecast of the entire business model and cash flow forecast um working closely side by side with the finance team and really it was about as some of that was unfolding what were the different approaches that we could take and i think i think it really mattered to me that we didn't go dark on our customers that we had a voice and that we tried to do the best that we could to trade through through that time so we hunkered down to an extent we were really careful about our product we we traded hard where we could and we tried to make the best of the types of product lines that we could but where there was product that it was just like this is so for example we had some occasion wear dresses well everything was obviously cancelled um you know until goodness knows how long so it was just going right just keep it back we're not going to be able to sell it so effectively mothball it and at some point we will then be able to trade that through and of course that put the pressure on cash because your cash was tied up in your stock you couldn't sell the stock so that's hence you know we needed the cash to not only manage um you know the cost of operating the business even with furlough schemes and you know really going to the minimal viable that we could do to operate the business it was still about really managing cash and when we were looking at cash sales start on a you know absolute daily if not hourly basis and then we we did around at that point it was a convertible loan note with the future fund so the government obviously put lots of different schemes in place we leveraged the furlough scheme and the sort of bounce back type loans but we needed a bigger um, injection of capital to, to navigate the longer period. And they finally came up with a scheme that was more suitable to our business, which was the, the future fund scheme. But you needed a main investor to match. So effectively, the investor would put in an amount and then the future fund would match it. And you know, because we had really fostered such a good inv- uh, relationship with our investment partners and our shareholders, it, I think it was easier for us to then approach that conversation and have their full support. So 
it goes to show that, you know, the better relationships you can have with your investors when there are times of need and things go, uh, you know, more difficult, you're more likely to be supported by them. So that put us in good stead for that. And actually, because we had that stock and we were able to trade through that and we got the money from the future fund, that really gave us a, a runway of, so that was 2020. And it was only in the spring this year that we you know, went out to the crowd. So we were able to then use that runway for, you know, a decent three year period to continue to grow the business. And fortunately, although at one point during COVID, everybody thought nobody would ever leave the home again, or, you know, wear high heels again, or ever get dressed up again, or do anything. Obviously, that's not what happened. And there was a actually a really, really positive resurgence of people going back into the workplace. And, we we really um, have sort of seen a lot of growth come about since since sort of we've waved goodbye to COVID, which has been absolutely brilliant. So that's that's amazing. Um, and what's, although and what, it was I mean, hard, what, are, it's good. what are people? What are people? I mean, what are people wearing into the office now? Has that changed? It has actually. What we've seen, and obviously we're you know a lot of the customers who were coming to us for our product, it's it's very high quality. They're quite investment prices, so these are pieces which. You really sort of it's it's a def, you know definitive choice to go right. I'm going to buy that fabulous suit and I'm going to you know wear it for a long period of time. But what we've seen is a real customers really embracing things that are more bold. I think ordinary feels a little bit boring at the moment, so they've gone for really great color, a lot of print, a lot of head to toe looks. So head to toe colored suiting, and it's almost like. If you're going to still do, let's say, one, two, three days at home, then you can really embrace the comfort on those days and, you know, feel just super relaxed when you're at home and, and, you know, sort of trawling through spreadsheets or whatever it is you're doing. But actually, then if you've got two or three days in the office, just absolutely go for it. And people are going, well, I'm going to go to the office and I'm going to make sure I go see my friends after work for dinner or I'm going to go and go to the theatre or whatever. So pile it all in to those two or three days and really up the ante. So we've seen a, a lot of a lot of that being a real positive. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that. I couldn't agree more. I can't, I, I mean, I do love, you know, sitting here in my tracksuit bottoms, <laughs> but it is so exciting when you're kind of like, right, I'm speaking at an event. I can't wait. What am I going to wear? I've, you know, I love it more than ever, as you say, because it's such a unique thing to do. So let's, let's sort of finish this story, you know, by talking about your latest round then. So why crowdfund now after all these years of all these other different types of funding? What's what's drawn you finally to come to crowdfunding? I think for us, it was the really exciting proposition of being able to go out to our customers. So we'd taken the investment from angel investors. And as we've discussed from a sort of more institutional investor, and they were all, you know, part of that crowdfund so you go into the crowdfund and you you build a sort of cornerstone so you're going into it already knowing that you've you've managed to secure some quite significant investment already from those partners who are already in the business but it was really about going actually we've got these incredible customers i mean they are such amazing women doing extraordinary things every single day and many of them are really really loyal to the brand and what better way to really bring them truly into the fold um, than by offering them the chance to invest? So it really felt like a great time to do that. And we had the most wonderful response. Uh, I think we got about 400 investors into the round in the crowdfund. And what was also really exciting for us is obviously as a brand where the big part of our message is about empowering women, we really wanted to see 
as many female investors come into the round as possible. And I think the statistics typically on the Crowdcube platform, which was the platform we raised through, is about 30% or under being the female female investment proportion. And actually, we were really delighted to see that our proportion was more like 70% women coming into our round. And that's positive for the Crowdcube platform because it means actually all those women are now part of that community and hopefully we'll go on to look at other investments that are available but also to show that you can really generate that interest now and, and there are more women and it's even even if it's the first thing it doesn't have to be a huge sort of game-changing moment but just starting small and getting on that journey of becoming an angel investor I think is so exciting for people and you know to give them the opportunity of a business like ours feels feels like a nice way to do that so we, yeah we're really thrilled and it felt like the right moment to do it yeah and I mean I, I totally agree and I I mean, as you know, I crowdfunded for my last business like a long time ago. I think we were the first fashion brand in the UK to do so. And it is exciting when you've got customers on board. But this point you make about how it's it enables women who have the potential invest to dip their toe into the water in a reasonably easy way. You know, they could put as little as £10 in. I mean, I'm sure they put way more than £10 in. But it's just, you know, I think a lot of women are very intimidated by this idea of investing. We need more women. We need more female angel investors. I think the only way we're going to really genuinely close the gender funding gap. And, you know, a brand like yours on a crowdfunding platform, you know, is, is such an important piece of that puzzle, you know, bringing all those women on board. So, you, you know, that in itself is an incredible thing, I'm sure. Never mind about your incredible business. <laughs> But, you know, empowering those women to invest as well as empowering them to, to dress in amazing clothes. Um, it's quite something, Polly. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we're really delighted with it. And as you say, I think, you know, going back to that theme of common ground, if you don't have, you know, grow the base of female investors or minority investors, you're you're just not then bringing more common ground into the equation. So mm. until there is more of that, it'll be really hard for that funding gap to close because you're just still going back to the same pool of investors with whom you don't have as much common ground and it again it's just a harder conversation then so I think it's hugely important. Mm. Well so congratulations on that round so what's next for the fold what are we going to see from you over the next few years Polly? We've got so many exciting opportunities uh, one near-term one is that we are looking to open more stores so keep an eye out and we've got one wonderful store in London so far but the sort of rolling out a bit more of a retail story for the brand um, is really exciting for us. We also, I mentioned, we're, we're quite international. We do ship to lots of countries, but actually the US is a huge market for us. It's 50% of our sales. So we'll continue to invest behind growth in the US market, which is really exciting for us. And then also just continuing on what's really our true north, which is at the end of the day, we're a a, a product brand bringing amazing workwear and occasion wear to our fabulous customers. So making sure that we're offering a great range, you know, continuing to invest in that range and that development and our brand development and the partnerships that we have is really, really exciting for the business. So lots of, lots of things to come. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing your, your quite epic journey with us, Polly. <laughs> And um, I can't wait to see what happens next. Um, I feel like I immediately need to go to the fold and buy myself a new outfit. <laughs> Absolutely. Please do. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Thanks Polly. 
Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.